Hi guys, I'm happy to announce that I've just launched my new app called Say Hello. It's a speech sound practice app designed for parents of children who are receiving speech therapy for articulation and intelligibility impairments. Think of this app as a quick and engaging way for parents to complete speech homework without the fuss of those practice packets that we photocopy and they just are never seen again. It makes practice sessions easy and accessible while also helping parents to be natural coaches and know exactly how to cue their child to make their speech sounds correctly. So we all know that children who practice their speech sounds daily are more likely to make progress. This means the more they practice with the child, the less time will be spent in speech therapy and more confidence for their child. Say Hello provides parents with quick guided practice sessions that they can do anywhere. Working in conjunction with their speech therapist, they pick the sound the child needs to work on and follow the provided prompts. Parents select the time that works best for them to receive notifications, and they can complete a practice session in three to five minutes. So we offer a free seven-day trial, and after that, it's just $4.95 a month. Check it out wherever you get your apps. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geiser and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Welcome back, everybody, to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are going to be discussing Chapter 7 from Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. But first, we are going to play Like It, Love It, Leave It. So hang out with us and then stay tuned for chapter seven. Okay, Laura. So I'm going to go first, if that's okay. All right. Okay. Here's a question as old as time. Honestly, I can't count the amount of people who've asked me for my opinion about this. Basket, bag, box. (laughs) All right. I am going to love a bag like a box and goodbye basket leaving it never need one never need a basket for anything God, like what am I doing gathering strawberries having a picnic too old for the Easter bunny to come so baskets are not (laughs) popular in your home I'm over I mean I do have baskets here and there for things like when I tried to make my laundry room cute, I used some baskets to store bottles and stuff in, you know. Yeah. Don't love it, though. I don't like anything about them. Fair. Okay. <laughs> so if you're, like, if you're shopping, whatever you're doing, you said bag is number one. Love a bag or like a bag? Okay. Are you thinking of a basket, like a shopping basket? No. Okay. Here's my visual. I'm thinking bag, reusable Trader Joe's bag, tote bag. Yeah. Box? Cardboard box. What other kind of box? I don't know. Love it. Need it. I've got so many boxes piled up. Plus, what about like storage boxes? Plastic. Is that a basket? I count it as a box. (laughs) (laughs) If it has a lid, it's a box. But you're thinking of a handled basket, like a woven traditional. I'm picturing something you carry. Yes. Mm, Okay. This changes things for me for my answer. (laughs) Okay, uh, I think I'm love bag, like box, Uh leave basket. Okay, but you were on the fence about basket. So what do you consider a basket? Do you have a lot of things in your house that you think of as baskets? Yeah, in my mind, basket is a box with no lid. 
Okay. Right? Yeah, and I have plenty of those. Yeah, I mean, it's a gray, it's a gray area. But I will share, okay, speaking of baskets, mm-hmm. do you follow on Instagram or know of the Home Edit? Yeah. The organization ladies. Yeah. Okay. I kind of went on a kick where I was like, okay, I like love these ladies. And they're all about the boxes and the baskets, right? Mm-hmm. And I did do some nice reorganization of my Tupperware containers. And I added a lazy Susan under my sink and the cupboard oh. is really helpful for cleaning supplies. Love a lazy Susan. Oh, yeah. But I was looking on Instagram today and I saw they posted a picture. And this, I'm curious to hear what you think, because this was also my problem when I was reading the book. Is like, okay, so they showed this picture and maybe you can throw this in if you're going to put this on Instagram. You can find the picture. Okay. They show this picture of, they're like, this is one of our proudest organizational moments. And it's Khloe Kardashian's pantry. Can you look at it right now? Can you go look at it right now? Okay. First of all, it looks like a grocery store. But I would like to hear your thoughts upon first glance. Okay. That looks like one of those stores inside a Las Vegas casino. Okay. Everything's $8. (laughs) (laughs) Her poor kids. Actually, they probably have to have fun with it. They have to check out at the cashier after they get something. Sure. My other thought is, this is so wasteful because she has only bought all this food to put on display and so much of it is going to go bad. We know Khloe Kardashian's not eating pasta. So many salad dressings. Like I buy a bunch of the one salad dressing I like. And it still will go bad. And it's, I only use one type, but if I buy like three bottles at a time, yeah, they're going to go bad. Yes. Okay. So this is what the comment section was full of is like, this is disgusting excess. But this was a problem I had with their book is they're like, everything is for the aesthetic. So they're organizing the bathroom. They're like, just put all your multiples of your deodorant in here. And I'm like, who has like multiples of deodorant lying around? Sometimes I get that you go to Costco and you're like, oh, better pick up a four pack. It's not like deodorant really goes bad. But when you are like collecting things for the aesthetic of having this really nice like row of deodorant stretching into the back of your cabinet, too much of the focus is on organizing the stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, I had this problem too. Because when I when the first season of the Home Edit came out on Netflix, I went on a crazy kick. Yeah. Where I was buying all those plastic boxes oh, yeah? where you could see stuff and they're so cute. Yeah. I still have a lot of them. I used to have a really a refrigerator that was too small. And I got a bunch of those things where it goes all the way to the back and you can pull it out kind of to grab a, a jar of something. Oh very yes, convenient. Yeah. Loved it. But I did feel like all of the containers were taking up so much space. And then, yeah, like to make things look cute, you did have to buy like extra. And those pantries are always like that. It's like, how many of these things do you need? I know when I buy canned food, I'm going to end up throwing it away. Really? Khloe Kardashian is not feeding her kids those canned vegetables. Is this actually her prepper stash? (laughs) They were like Progresso soup. Like... (laughs) You know she has, like, a chef. Like, what? Yeah. Crazy. That is pretty disgusting. I know. Like, of course, it's beautiful to look at, but everybody's mind is immediately going to go to, who are you feeding? I know. Like, if you really look, there are all those, like, jars of sugar and flour and stuff on the counter, and they're all in these liquid dispensers, like what you would get lemonade out of at, like, a picnic 
or a barbecue and everyone's like brown sugar it's never gonna come out of there like think about the viscosity of brown sugar if you have something where you push a button and liquid is supposed to flow out like is the brown sugar gonna come pouring out okay i see what you're talking about How like crazy yeah that? that one looks that counter looks like the continental breakfast at a cheap hotel <laughs> okay which i was like maybe if she's feeding constant armies of people yeah like a hotel right like continental yeah, breakfast like there's it. a line of people coming through her pantry loading yes. up their plate with stuff they just made their oatmeal they need that brown sugar to pour out of a little but it doesn't even work that way this was just probably a passion project of hers she probably was like please make me a gorgeous pantry that just looks beautiful. Yes. I'm not going to use it, but just do it. You are right. It does look exactly like a store in a fancy casino. In love, love that. Yeah. What a vibe. Anyway, when I think yeah. about boxes and bags and organizational things, I think of the home edit. So kind of a tangent, but a little bit related. Okay. Adrian. Yes. Like it, love it, leave it. Pancakes, waffles, French toast. Love pancakes. Like. French toast, leave waffles. What? (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite um, guilty pleasure is snooze. Have you ever been to snooze? We've talked about that before. Yeah. Okay. Snooze has great pancakes and you can get a flight of pancakes. Oh. So I was just there last weekend and I got a flight of pancakes as a breakfast starter, which is really fun. You want an appetizer, but you're at breakfast. You just get a little flight of pancakes. Do you want an appetizer that's going to make it so you can't eat anything else? Well, I did eat half my breakfast. but (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So wait, what flavors are they in the flight? Okay. You can choose any flavor and they had many flavors so we got their like seasonal flavor which was a brownie batter peanut butter pancake Ooh. i know then we got this one that was like apple strudel uh-huh and it was uh like a cinnamon butter with like kind of a granola strudel situation some like stewed apples and then a pineapple upside down pancake okay it was again like it's kind of stewed pineapple with um okay. like a you're describing cake. You're not describing pancakes. <laughs> I do like just a basic pancake too, like with a little like just maple buttermilk. Syrup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if it's fluffy and if it's done right, then it really hits. Yeah. Um, waffles, I mean I will, but French toast, at least it has Zazz, you know? Yeah. I never make it at home. And I rarely even order sweet when I'm out at breakfast. Same with me, unless I'm at certain places. But I was going to say love waffles. I don't know. That's not feeling right. Like French toast and leave pancakes. But like once you started describing the pancakes, okay. I was thinking about all the pancakes I love. And I started to really <laughs> chocolate rethink. Chocolate chip pancake? No, I don't eat a chocolate, chocolate chip. Nope. Never eat a chocolate chip pancake. Uh-huh. It's not for yeah. me. <laughs> I, like a, I like a more savory pancake. So like my favorite is just going to be okay. a buttermilk, like kind of sour or a potato okay. Oh, a latke. Yeah, a yeah. Latka. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my favorite type. <laughs> that's okay. like a whole different discussion. <laughs> it's like a fritter. <laughs> but then I I love French toast. Plus, French toast, you leave the meal. I always think about with pancakes, I leave feeling very heavy and tired. Oh, carby. But French toast is like high protein. You got all the eggs. 
And it's just like a light little piece of bread, like a fluffy little brioche, maybe. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know what? Forget my whole thing about loving waffles. It's just what I I do eat waffles the most. Like I'll get like those protein waffles and I'll pop them in the toaster here and there. I don't love waffles. That's not what mm. I'm going to pick at a restaurant. No, I do like that it no, has no, no. a little. It's like a waffle is made up of many tiny bowls to hold the maple syrup, and I like that. <laughs> yeah it's very utilitarian I don't love anything more than butter so when I get a bite where like a big chunk of butter kind of just like melted and nestled into Mm. one of those little bowls yeah yeah (laughs) yum okay now we're hungry we're gonna leave this episode we're gonna go eat some breakfast food (laughs) pancakes yum all right. Thank you, everyone, for sticking with us. Um, if you would like to chime in on the discussion where you land, pancakes, waffles, French toast, <laughs> feel free to go to the Instagram. Let us know. Stay tuned for Chapter 7 from Uniquely Human. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan, and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her Lidcomb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. (laughs) The best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP book club. Chapter seven is all about what it takes to get it. So get it is in quotes. Like how can we get it? So Dr. Barry tells a story about a girl named Denise and her one-on-one aide, Paul. Paul was really great with Denise, and he was able to watch her until exactly when she was becoming dysregulated. So he was really in tune with her, and he could give her exactly what she needed, exactly when she needed it. And when Dr. Barry asked, like, how are you able to do that? He said, I just pay attention. So he was great at supporting Denise, not because he followed some complicated BIP or behavior plan, but because he was attuned to her and he had these instincts to watch and to listen and to be sensitive to her needs. So this also helped him to earn her trust. 
And it can be really hard for families to find the right people to help their child. So these people are doctors, therapists, educators, mentors, teachers, and they have an instinctual ability to connect with autistic people if you can find the right one. So some people just have the it factor and they're naturals when it comes to working with and connecting with autistic people. Other people can be it-like, you know, sort of adjacent to the people who have the it factor, but they're kind of like second tier, right? So these people might not have those natural instincts that, you know, the it factor people have, but they're willing to learn. They can ask the families, you know, how can I change my behavior to best connect with your child? Or mostly they're enthusiastic, they're willing to learn and to grow, and they're open to taking direction from the family. The third group of people are those who seem unable to connect and tend to cause dysregulation in the autistic person. So they're more focused on control and often come to the situation with preconceived ideas. So these people can also be really insensitive to sensory issues or other issues that come along with having autism. And parents who are starting off on their journey tend to eagerly seek help from any professional, right? They're just starting out. They don't know what's going on. They're looking for help. But it's easy for them to become jaded if they encounter too many people from that third group. And it can cause them to lose trust in professionals who cause their children more stress and anxiety and just don't seem to understand their child. There are some traits, though, that are shared by the people who just seem to get it. And one of those traits is empathy. So empathy is important to try to understand how an autistic person sees, understands, and experiences the world. And these people pay close attention to the person and try to read and make sense of their behavior and then they respond accordingly in the best way to support them. They also look at the human factor. So instead of just explaining away every behavior as non-compliant or stimming, they can take the time to ask, why does it happen at this time and not other times? Or how is this helpful to the person? And then they take the time to try to do the detective work to figure out why something's happening instead of just applying this framework or these preconceived notions to the situation. Sensitivity to the autistic person's signs of regulation and dysregulation is also important. So a lot of the it factor people watch and recognize subtle facial expressions and behaviors in order to tell if the child is feeling anxious or overwhelmed. Most importantly, they don't feel the need to exert control over the autistic person. So it's not about keeping them within certain bounds, but it's about sharing control with the person and helping them to feel empowered and supported. So this is a way of showing more respect for the individual and their autonomy. They also give the autistic person control in certain situations like letting them make a choice or do something for themselves, which leads to greater independence and self-sufficiency. People who get it are also able to have a sense of humor and a healthy perspective about situations that the autistic person finds themselves in or maybe certain things they say or do. So it's easy for professionals to fall into a perspective of kind of doom and gloom where like everything's so tragic, everything's so hard, but it goes a long way to be able to kind of lighten things up, find the humor in a situation and sort of change the emotional tone. So they're able to build trust and a positive relationship with the autistic person and their family. So the people who got it are all about listening and considering the needs and desires of the autistic person instead of trying to force their own agenda. The working relationship is so much smoother when there's listening and respect at the beginning of the situation. And flexibility is also important. So too often, 
The professional enters a situation with an autistic person with kind of a plan in mind. This can prevent people from adapting to the situation and responding to the needs of the individual. Professionals need to try to feel what the person is feeling and understand what's causing certain behaviors instead of just sticking to a treatment plan that's too rigid. If a professional is too forceful about sticking to a plan, especially if the parents feel uneasy about it or they don't think it's going to work, it can cause a loss of trust in the professional. So I was thinking about this, Laura, and I am a big fan of a lot of plans. Um, Like I love peers. Everybody knows that, although there is a lot of room for flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was thinking about some of those things on Teachers Pay Teachers that you see that are like meant to make the speech therapist life easier. So it's like, you know, one year of social skills lesson plans for the speech (sighs) therapist. Yeah. Or something like that. And I feel like sometimes that can be kind of the problem is when it can be so hard to be flexible and adapt to every single child on your caseload who has autism and to provide that really like dialed in therapy. Mm-hmm. It just takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. So I see how it's kind of tempting to find like a one size fits all plan or kind of stick to what you know. We talk about this kind of thing a lot. But after reading this, you know, it is so important to consider each child as an individual. All I can say is I've worked with people in the past who seemed to set up at the beginning of the year what they would work on with the kids. And adjust a little bit, but really had a plan in place. Like every week I'm working on this. This is how we're going to progress through it. And it seemed like it made planning and their life a lot easier than mine, which was like constantly just a whirlwind of trying to find new things to use with kids and like adjust, you know, adjusting things on the fly and figuring out new activities and just constantly thinking about all my kids all the time, nonstop, like driving, showering, making dinner, you know, sleeping, just always like, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Versus that I'm set. I've got what I work on very dialed in and we stick to this plan and there isn't a lot of room for movement. I mean, obviously we know taking into account individual differences. Right having bad days, stuff like that. I mean, it's just, you have to be flexible. But I think for some of us, for our sanity, we kind of just stick to a plan, right? Yeah. I think a nice middle ground is trying to be flexible during the session. Or if you hear from a teacher like, ooh, you know, the student's really having a hard time with this, you can sort of weave that into your plan maybe. I'm definitely not Mm -hmm. trying to like point the finger of blame at people who are trying to streamline their lives, (laughs) trust me. I feel like almost the tagline of our podcast should be like, be flexible, because I feel like that's all we talk about. (laughs) Yeah. It's just so important. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for you. Adrian. do you think you have it? Do I have it? (laughs) I think you probably have it, right? I don't know. I kind of feel like part of the second group. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) I think you have it, Laura. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, I have it with young kids with autism and I am itless. I do not have it with upper elementary to middle to high school kids with autism. Oh. I'm totally out of my depth. Don't know how to interact oh. for sure with a kindergartner who is not yet using speech 
a kid who people would label as nonverbal. I've got it. Good. I am the person that that kid goes to. Aww, I remember yeah. one time a little kid whose mom was like constantly in tears, mm. a parent who was frustrated with some things going on at the school, was dropping her son off and I happened to be in the class and I was down low talking to another kid and he came right over to me, just like wrapped his arms around me and gave me this big wet open mouth kiss on my cheek. <laughs> like didn't quite know how to kiss. And she was just like, Aww. okay, now I know I can trust you because he does, he only does that to people Aww. that he loves. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah. I love that moment. So I feel like I have yeah, it, you know, but only there's like a caveat only with the really young ones. Yeah. I think it's like everybody probably has it in one way or another. It just depends on the population. It depends on the area of need. Okay. Like some of the stories that we're going to get into with Dr. Barry, it's like, I just don't know. I tend to struggle with flexibility, period. So sometimes it's a little hard for me to like think on my feet or be like really creative. I don't feel like I'm always like such a creative problem solver. So I think that's probably why I feel like I don't have it. But I'm always wanting to show up for families and help in the best way I can. But some people just really have that magic wand. They're like this little whisperer for these autistic children. It's really amazing. I'm a little jealous, honestly. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we talked about it a lot last book, Beyond Behaviors, when we were talking about that the relationship being the best the most important thing. And you see that with the AIDS, like that kid I just described ended up getting an aid from a non-public agency right. who I wasn't sure about at first. And then as I saw their relationship grow and the way that he was such an emotionally regulating factor for that kid that he could just say like, Hey, it's okay. You know, like, mm -hmm. or move. He was kind of like Paul. He was like this big guy and he could just like move a little closer and that you could see the kid like, okay, he's here. I trust him. So things are going to be okay. You're like, hey, he's not even doing, I don't think this is part of a plan. This isn't a behavior plan. Right. This is just right. him like knowing when he needs to show that kid he's there. Yes. You know, I have seen some really beautiful relationships between children and their one-on-one -on -one aides. Yeah. And this is another case of, you're right, it's like when when they have it, when it's instinctive and they don't have to even work that hard at it, it's just so natural. Mm -hmm. It's a really beautiful thing to see. And those yeah. kids do tend to make a lot of progress. Yeah. So people who get it also show a willingness to learn from autistic individuals. So many different autistic people have contributed their perspectives to the bigger conversation around autism, um, especially in the last like 15 years. And this has driven massive change within the education, treatment and support for autistic people. Okay, so speaking of that, um, showing a willingness to learn from autistic individuals, I think if you are listening to this podcast, you probably, that one applies to you, you know, you're wanting to gain more information about how to engage with autistic people, you're wanting to read books about it, you're educating yourself, and that is so great. So kudos to you out there listening. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So Dr. Barry shares a story about a seventh grader named Carlos who was having aggressive outbursts in class. His principal had called him into her office, but instead of yelling at him or telling him he was doing something wrong, they simply sat and shared an orange together. And this helped to form a connection with Carlos. And she did some other follow-ups like going into his classroom to observe 
which was her way of showing him she was invested in his success. And again, beyond behaviors, right? This is kind of like er, when I read it. She told him that if he could follow the rules and behave appropriately for like a certain amount of time, she would invite him back to her office. So although sharing oranges together seems simple, it helped to form a close bond between the two of them. And people who get it often seem to understand that meaningful relationships between autistic people and neurotypical adults tend to look different than traditional relationships. So Dr. Barry gives another example of an artist named Denise who was asked to mentor a young autistic artist who was showing signs of talent, but he only wanted to draw cartoon characters. And when she tried to suggest for him to draw something else, he was really resistant. So she decided to motivate him by meowing like a cat. And she used her knowledge about him, which was that he really loved animals, to think of a creative and flexible way to motivate him. So he liked it. And, you know, it helped him to grow as an artist. He started to paint different subjects, still lifes and landscapes. And it was like she used her knowledge and her flexibility to really help him unlock his talent. Love that. Yes, me too. And, you know... I was actually had this moment where I was in an IEP where we were talking about a student who he is autistic and he's having a lot of behavioral problems. And the whole team was kind of it felt like I was in an IEP from this book or from Beyond Behaviors where it's like the whole team is saying he's attention seeking. What can we do? And the school psych was asking me like, Adrian, do you have any suggestions for accommodations? And I'm like listening to everybody. And they gave some background information about the living environment in the household, which was that there had been a separation of children. Half of the kids went with the dad and half went with the mom. Oh. And there was some competition between the student and a sibling where they were competing for attention in the home. So I'm like thinking about the iceberg. I'm hearing this story. And when it was time for me to share, I was like asking the psych, well, what do you think the function is of this acting out behavior. Is it attention? And she said, yes, I definitely think it's attention. And I'm like, okay, well, can we think of ways to provide him with this attention so that he feels special, but it's not because he's acting out in a negative way? Like, can we give him more compliments? Can we sit him closer to the teacher? Like, it was totally like this moment where I was putting everything we've been reading into effect. I'm like, Maybe he can sit kind of close to the teacher's desk and maybe he can do special jobs in the classroom and that can help him get that same feeling, but in a positive way. And then also help him build, you know, meaningful relationships with the teachers. I don't know. I don't know if they were into it, but I, I kind of got on my <laughs> soapbox. I was going to say, how receptive were they? Um, they did put in an accommodation, like frequent verbal praise but they were really specific about like, well, we want to make sure it's only if you see him doing something good. Only if you see, even if it's something small, you know, drop a little like great work, good focus. You know, I love how nice you're being to your peer, whatever. Mm -hmm. it, but yeah, they, at least they put that in there. But I was kind of trying to shift. Yeah. I was just reminded at one of my internships in grad school, this elementary school, SLP, kind of old school he would always bring tons of like little tangerines, like clementines to work. Oh, and yeah. he'd also put other stuff in his refrigerator. And like he had some boys in a group 
who loved to like see what he had. And he was just so, I mean, talk about flexibility. They'd be like, do you have any oranges today? And then he'd go, let me look. He'd give everyone an orange. And like, while we're working, we'd all be peeling oranges and eating them. Or like one day he was just like, I don't have oranges, but you know, I have some tortillas and cheese. We could make a quesadilla in the microwave, you know, like, (laughs) I was just like, what? Crazy. (laughs) But it's kind of like, it was just kind of nice to watch. Like he just, could drop everything. I think I've told you before, one time a wind-up toy broke and he was like, should we take it apart and see if we can fix it? You know, like he just would drop all his lesson plans and focus on whatever was happening in the moment. Oh, you guys are hungry? Forget what we're doing. Let's make a quesadilla together. I love that. I wish there was more wiggle room. Yeah. I do feel like things are going in the opposite direction. Yeah. With like productivity demands and stuff, but... And then we forget the most important thing, which is just building relationships with kids. Yeah. Connection. Yes. A thousand percent. There was another example of a boy who didn't want to participate in PE. He was obsessed with the U.S. presidents, though, and his PE teacher knew that. So the teacher renamed all of the exercises after the presidents. So like if you stretched up with your hands in the air, that was the President Lincoln because he was really tall. (laughs) Or if you were jumping like you were shooting a basket, that was the President Obama because he played basketball. And the whole class would follow these, you know, newly named exercises. It wasn't just him. And she would even allow the autistic student to pick whichever exercise he wanted to do for the day. So because she was flexible and also was paying attention to him and to his interests, she was able to incorporate a couple of key different objectives. So she showed she was interested in what he was interested in. She gave him the opportunity for independence by letting him choose the exercise. And she also provided the opportunity to connect with his peers socially. And then I like this part a lot, too, because I feel like this is really relevant to many situations. When school administrators and principals get it, it helps to set an example for the whole school staff. So it can help to motivate and provide confidence to seek out solutions that would best help the student without the fear of ideas being turned down because they're unorthodox. So these kinds of leaders create compassionate and caring communities and also earn the loyalty and respect of their staff. Laura, have you ever had like an amazing principal at any of your schools? Yes. That fits the bill. Yes. At one of my first schools, I just had this amazing principal And it was a huge school, so we had three assistant principals. And my assistant principal, who was in charge of the IEPs, he was in charge of all the special ed. He was amazing. (laughs) Like, I I mean, he left at the end of my second year because he got a job as a principal. And it was like the worst tragedy of my life. We had to have all these substitute assistant principals run the IEPs. And I was just devastated. I mean, I was happy for him. But the connection he would have with the kids... And then also the principal, like, I just, I mean, they were, they were a real dream team admin. Yeah. Like, I just can't, I've, I've talked about that school. Like, yeah. just, I loved going to the events. The principal would really like make an effort to make you feel like part of the community with the teachers. I mean, just a beautiful school and really, really caring. Like they cared so deeply about all the students and their families. I love that. I think That is the problem, right? Like I've also had a really amazing principal who was a great proponent for special ed and was like very caring and empathetic to the parents and students. 
And it's like when these gems come along, they always get promoted. Yeah. Right? That's the problem is when you're so good at your job, they take them away from you because they're so good. They want to, you know, use them to their advantage. So it's a little bit of a bummer. And then also they ruin the rest of the principles you work with. You know, like oh, yeah. you, I, I worked with great principals, great at admin at my other schools, but I still was like, oh, <laughs> I know. you know, you just look back on that feeling you had at that one school. I mean, they talked about that when we were in grad school, like how much the, what do they call it? Oh, um, culture? Culture. Each school has its own culture. You get that instant feeling about a school after you've worked there for a few weeks. You're like, yes. I don't like it here. <laughs> this feels weird. I know. I know. I know. It is hard. And it does kind of like set the bar pretty high, right? Yeah. Well, Dr. Barry shares an example of Linda, a special education director who made a point to personally visit the home of every family who had a child who was aging, sort of like out of an early start program and into the school district around the age of three for special education. So some people who worked for the district were not sure if this was the right move for her. She was really busy. They're like, is this a good use of your time? But she seemed to instinctually get that making these visits and answering questions was a way to, A, ease the anxiety of parents whose children were entering the school system, and then B, also create a foundation of trust for the parents in the district and the whole situation. So when parents feel nurtured from the beginning of their child's educational journey, it really helps foster that relationship for years to come. Oftentimes, some of the most supportive and flexible teachers are not even those who are in special ed. So Dr. Barry talks about one music teacher who tried really hard to showcase the talents of every child, even those on the autistic spectrum. So I really like what he said verbatim to Dr. Barry. So I'm going to quote him. Dr. Barry asked about his approach and he said, these children have so many obvious challenges. I'm not doing my job unless I make sure that all of the students participate and that all of the students see the abilities of their classmates. So I really feel like what an angel, you know, yeah. even the music teacher where it feels so kind of on the outskirts of the school situation and academics and everything that's going on. It's like everybody can make a difference. Everybody can connect with the child and let them feel seen, which is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of other ways to include autistic children in the school community. So speech pathologists and SPED teachers can develop a routine where the children follow simple recipes to bake cookies. And then they go around the school delivering them to different classrooms. Or they can create a store that sells snacks and drinks, which can help draw in neurotypical students as well and provide opportunity to have natural social interactions or you can even see an enthusiastic student who is on the spectrum and allow that student to join the cheerleading squad so they become a valued member of the team. There's a lot of different ways to include the students if a school is willing to be flexible and not just talk the talk but also walk the walk. So while many families encounter people who've got it, they also encounter lots of people who do not. So it is important not to view an autistic child as a deficit checklist and to always collaborate with the family because they know their child best. So as professionals, we should never jump to conclusions or assume that we know the child best or what's going on with them. There should be a good balance of emphasis on strengths and what's working well in addition to talking about what's hard. 
And if the child's old enough, you can also ask them for their input on what seems to be working and what doesn't. Parents of a newly diagnosed child tend to be anxious about prognosis, and that can be such a hard thing with autism. So it's important to remind them that the trajectory of growth the child demonstrates over time tells us the most about their potential. It's our job to make sure we're providing the right supports and environments and people to help the child make the most progress that they can. But it's also important to remember that there is never a limit on somebody's potential and development is a lifelong process. So sometimes the people who don't get it pay more attention to the plan than the child. And Dr. Barry shared a sad story. It's really bummed me out of a boy who found certain noises to be excruciating. So he had to wear a helmet because he becomes self-injurious. And when Dr. Barry was observing at his school, he saw an admin pick him up and drag him to the gym where the child did not want to go because it was so noisy. And he threw him onto a mat and said, this is our intervention for non-compliance. And it was totally abuse. Like Dr. Barry was like, I was shocked. What was I supposed to do? I'm just like watching the whole thing. But of course, I think he reported it. But it's like this kind of abuse happens when admins and teachers and therapists try to stick to a plan that's causing a child distress. And it sounded almost like this was like one of the big regrets of Dr. Barry's life. You could sense from the way he wrote about it. Right. He was like, it happened so fast. And you can just see that he probably looks back on it like, why didn't I stop it? Like, why couldn't I stop that guy from... Because he literally picked the kid up and like carried him, dragged him under his arm. Right. All the way to yes. the gym and then threw him down. And it's like... That's oh. just... <laughs> to observe that, I can't even imagine. No. And Dr. Barry was there because the mom was like, hey, can you check out his school? Which was also <laughs> a specialized school for autistic children. And to have an admin being so like... Obviously, the root cause is inflexibility. And not wanting to be compassionate, but I can't even imagine. No. It can also be problematic to focus on the child's reputation instead of their potential. So if a child comes your way and you've heard, oh, they're really aggressive, and then you enter the situation with that expectation, it'll probably be that way. So it's better to just ignore what you've heard and treat the child with respect, pay close attention to them, and expect the best. And you also want to try to make sure you're not trying to control instead of support. So sometimes people assume that to be effective, maybe you need to be in the person's face or use overly physical like hands-on approaches. But a lot of children with autism have social anxiety and sensory challenges. So this can be scary and intimidating for them. It can also prevent progress if it dysregulates the child to the point where they can't focus. And it's also important to be sensitive to a parent's hopes and dreams and your delivery of information. So Dr. Barry shared the story of a seventh grader who had been mainstreamed for years, but was now beginning to fall behind academically. The principal told Dr. Barry that the team wanted to switch his program from a more academic focused program to a more life skills based program. But Dr. Barry knew that academic success was really important to this child's mom and told the principal, hey, you should meet with her separately before the meeting to kind of like introduce the topic so she's not blindsided. And the principal is like, I don't want to worry about that. I can figure it out. Like, this is how we run meetings here. And Dr. Barry was like, all right. So during the IEP, one teacher after another after another talked about how he was falling behind academically and they wanted to shift him to the life skills program. 
And by the time the fourth teacher spoke, the mom just burst into tears and ran out of the room. So the admin was trying to prioritize efficiency and like standard operating procedure over being sensitive to the parent's perspective. And the information was not presented in a way that would be most helpful to her. So there was a loss of trust that happened. And it's important to be sensitive to the needs and the hopes and the dreams of each child and family to try to build trust and work collaboratively in the situation and serve the best interests of all. So the most important thing to remember is to not judge the families or children you work with and to just be along with them on the journey. So he talks about, I think he had a professor come to one of his classes in the 70s or something and the professor had a child with autism and he said, like, think about year after year, this is like being on a carousel and we always have to be on the carousel. And maybe you as the therapist just come on the carousel for a year or two years But this is our journey and you're here to like help us on the carousel. You can get off and we can't kind of a vibe. So, you know, the most important thing you can do to get it is just try to help while you're on the journey. So, Laura, you like the chapter? What did you think? I love this chapter. Once again, it took me so long to read because I would realize that I was like reading a whole page, but my mind was thinking about a kid. You know, I was just going back in time and thinking about some of my different students. Yeah, some things. I mean, I kind of like Dr. Barry. It's like I've seen some people interacting with kids that made me a little uncomfortable. Yeah. And I feel a little bit of like, why did I just sit and let that happen? But I was like, well, they're the behavior specialist or something like that. I know. It's like you feel it's a little bit hard to intervene sometimes. Yeah. Oh, and then the other thing I was going to say is I am absolutely guilty of letting other people's stories about a kid influence my perception of them before I've even met the kid. Yes. Like I remember one year having a kid that (laughs) I was new to the school and this RSP teacher had been at a school with this kid that was new at a previous school. I mean, it was like she had all this history with him and she stood and talked to me in my room for like 30 minutes about him, just like telling me every bad thing. And by the time I saw the kid, met the kid, I was so terrified of this tiny child. Wow. (laughs) I was so scared. I don't know. I was just writing some notes thinking about that, like how important it is. Other people's relationship with that kid is not what yours will be. And the kid is going to interact with you depending on how you come to the table. And if you come with a bunch of fear, that's going to put a kid on high alert. And you're more likely to, you know, you could put the kid on the red pathway just because you're like. (gasps) Right. Immediately. And then look at that foundation for starting the relationship with like, you know. Oh. Oh, my gosh. So I don't know. What did you think of the chapter? I loved it. I mean, it was making me think a lot about getting it, about people who are really excellent at their jobs, about other people, where I could improve. Yeah, it's a little, it's interesting because I'm in teletherapy now, so I rarely am face-to-face with kids on the spectrum, and I feel a little bit limited, you know, in what I can do. But I think connection is connection and support is support, no matter how it's being delivered. So Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love Dr. Barry and I found some of his stories so cute in this chapter. And Okay, I have to tell you something. I just listened to my first episode of the Uniquely Human podcast today. Oh. And it was so good. Dr. Mm. Barry hosts it with an adult man who was diagnosed with Asperger's as an adult. Okay. And in the episode I was listening to, it was specifically this dad of a 12-year-old talking about ABA and his thoughts on it. 
they said some stuff that just blew my mind. Mm. I mean, I got, I have to maybe put a link to that episode in the show notes, like highly recommend because he has on all these different people, experts, parents, you get all these different perspectives on autism. People with autism are on there. And also Dr. Barry, like he told the story of the kid where he kept saying good job and the kid was yelling at him. No good job. No, no, <laughs> no good job. So I got to like hear the story from the book oh. from his own mouth. And it was just like, I felt like I was you know, talking to Dr. Barry. It was oh, great. God. So there's my recommendation for this week. Check it out. <laughs> the Uniquely Human podcast with Dr. Barry Prezant. Ooh, love that. All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us for chapter seven. Um, we will see you next time as we continue to discuss Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.